0: Hello, and welcome back to a new year of Livewire's Rules of Investing. I'm your host and editor at Livewire, Patrick Polk. We've got some exciting interviews planned for you this year. First up is Dr. Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital. He's also responsible for AMP's diversified funds. Today, we're talking about Australia. We discuss the share market, the economy, wages and, of course, house prices, where we talk about UBS's report late last year that Australia's 55-year housing boom has come to an end. I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for being with us today, Shane. Thank you, Patrick, and great to be here. Um, let's get straight into the big issue on everybody's mind. Recently, UBS economists put out a report saying that Australia's 55-year housing boom is officially over. Uh, do you reckon that's hyperbole, or is there an element of truth, or do you think there's a lot of truth? What's your view on that? Well, I think most of that is hyperbole. First of all, there's no official who
1: calls the end of any boom, uh, particularly regarding housing, so that's all an element of judgement. and. At the moment, all we're seeing is just another slowdown in uh, gains in house prices. And in Sydney, we saw that in 2005, prices came off five to 10%. We saw that in 2008, around the time of the GFC, and we saw that in 2012, prices again falling five to 10%. Similar story in Melbourne over the last uh, the last 15 years or so. So you could say, well, it's, it's come to an end officially, lots of times if you want on that basis. Um, there's also debatable why 55 years? If I look at a long-term chart of Australian housing back to the 1920s. It has periods of strength through the 1920s, weakness in around the time of the Great Depression up until World War II, then a massive boom in house prices in the post-war period up until the mid-70s and then a a sort of a a weaker period there in real terms and then of course taking off particularly through the 1990s. So there's been lots of huge swings there in in the Australian property market. Um, And I'm loath to call it a 55-year boom because I don't think it's that. You can virtually call the Australian economy a a 55 or a 100-year boom because the trend is normally up, but you occasionally get these pullbacks. So I'm a bit reluctant to sort of push down that path, saying there's a 55-year boom that's officially come to an end. I don't think that's the case. I think really what's happened here is that since the mid-1990s, we've been on a bit of a screamer. Um, If I go back to the mid-1990s, which incidentally was when I first, when I bought my house. So I I was very lucky to get in the mid-1990s. That was when bargains could be found. And then of course we went on a screamer over the last 20 odd years. Melbourne initially, Sydney, then it rotated around to Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth boomed. Um, And then of course it eventually came all the way back to Sydney and Melbourne. And of course now those two are slowing down. uh, Hobart's looking pretty good. So we've been all over the place in recent times, but I think really what's happening here is that the heat is just coming out of Sydney and Melbourne, thanks to the moves by APRA to tighten conditions up, uh, higher interest rates for some borrowers, um, and also a, an element of just poor affordability weighing on the market. But I certainly don't see a crash here, but what I do see is a period of weakness over the next 12 months. If you're getting, wanting to buy a home in Sydney or Melbourne, you're probably better off waiting um, a while before this
0: weakness let the weakness run, run its course. So p- perhaps more akin to what we've seen in those few periods over the past 10 or 15 years, rather than maybe what we saw in the early 90s. That's right, I, I think a, uh, a correction, uh, five
1: to 10% top to bottom decline, could be a little bit more, a little bit less. But um, if I was gonna lean a little bit more, that'd be Sydney, a little bit less would be Melbourne. Um, I think there's better value in Melbourne than in Sydney, although they're both horribly unaffordable. Um, but in the absence of much higher interest rates, or much higher unemployment, neither of which I see happening, it's hard to see a crash in the in the property market in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, I know there's people predicting it, but those people have been predicting that for the last decade or more now. And I, I just don't see the conditions there for that to occur. Um, but yeah, a bit of a pullback like uh, those earlier episodes around 2005, 2008, 2012. Um, hopefully then we then go through a sort of period where house prices sort of range sideways for a while and wages eventually catch up. Um, but that's if you're in Sydney and Melbourne. If you're in Perth, I reckon you're starting to bottom out. Um, it looks, looks a lot better than it has for a long time in Perth. And of course, if you're in uh, Canberra, Brisbane, Adelaide, you'll do okay, continue moderate gains um, and Hobart probably continues to do pretty well. So it's, it's very hard to talk generally about Australian property because it's all over the place.
0: Yeah, well, it's certainly very spread out. You mentioned wages growth there, and it seems to be a, a, a key part that's missing, mm. not just in Australia, but in many uh, developed economies around the world at the moment. Um, why do you think wages growth has been so, so weak despite the strong employment growth? Um, you know, the, the, the economy seems to be taking off, mm. but wages growth is the one thing that, uh, that has been left behind. What do you think it w- would take to see that improve? I think there's a bunch of things. W- wages growth has been suppressed by, well, we've had lower inflation,
1: that tends to feed through to lower wage demands. Um, you've had uh, very high levels of underemployment, people who have a job, but they want to work longer hours. So there's, there's a pool of underutilisation out there, underutilised workers, um, and that when the supply is greater than the demand, you know, the price goes down. Um, and then you've got uh, apprehension. Australian workers have seen, since the GFC anyway, r- rounds of layoffs Uh, that go from one industry to another, Um, constant focus on getting costs down and all this talk about artificial intelligence and robots replacing their jobs. So all of those things I think have made workers very nervous about things and we've got the complete inverse to what applied when I first started my career in the early 80s and when we had a wage overhang back then, wage growth was too strong, now it's the other way around, wage growth is too weak. Um, What will turn it? I think continued strength in the jobs market. We have seen um most recent numbers up to november very good jobs growth coming through that's been the story for the last year or now or so now um full-time jobs increasingly as opposed to part-time jobs that's good news and underemployment starting to look like it's coming down so all of those things i think will eventually feed through to higher wages growth and that will help keep the economy going but just got to be cautious there look at the us they've got an even far tighter labor market than us and they've only because their wages growth up to two and a half percent. So it's going to take a while for it to, to flow through here.
0: You mentioned AI and robots coming for our jobs. Do you think that's a, a serious risk that, that, that workers do need to be worried about? Or is it just uh, is it being played up and, and probably an unnecessary fear? I think it is a serious risk and
1: it is worth uh, thinking about. Um, and there will be certain jobs which are displaced. Uh, but you've got to put all this in context. You know, some people seem to think that there's going to be um, self-driving cars on the road instantly. Um, that's going to be a very long process before that fully uh, takes off. Therefore, those jobs out there with taxi drivers and uh, Uber drivers these days and, of course, truck drivers, bus drivers and so on, those jobs will take a while to disappear. Um, yeah. And there's lots of jobs out there which we'll just sort of transition. I mean, think about this um, 30, 35 years ago, ATMs sort of became, went all over Australia. Um, You would have thought that that would have led to less banking jobs. I mean, some areas it has, uh, but in other areas, the banks have more people. So it's um, one job goes, another one comes along. So, and I I think we've seen a long period of automation, mass production, offshoring, all these things have been going on for a long time. And yet, Still, we've got relatively high proportion of the Australian population in jobs. It's just that certain jobs have disappeared as other jobs have been created.
0: Yeah, well, I guess it's true. Well, I believe we've got some of the highest levels of employment uh, in globally in developed markets that we've mm. we've seen probably in history. Is that accurate? It, it is true. I, I mean, the US would have higher
1: level um, than Australia, but if you compare Australia to Europe and other parts of the world we're not doing too badly in fact we're doing reasonably well particularly when you allow for the fact that over the last 40 50 years you've seen a, a massive increase in the female participation rates in the workforce i mean at the end of the day i think yes you, you do get concerned about artificial intelligence robots and so on but i think it really highlights the need for the government to continue to invo- engage and edu- in re-educating the workforce making it easier for workers to move from one industry to another
0: well, I'd like to talk a little bit about rates. Um, obviously, there was the uh, the rate rise in the US overnight. Um, so the the figures that I've got here have not been updated for that. But up until uh, earlier this week, the, uh, the spread between the Aussie 10-year bond and the US 10-year bond was only around 15 basis points, um, which I believe is as close as it's been since around 2001. Um, do you think there's a possibility that that, that that spread could reverse and we end up with a, with a lower 10-year bond? And what would that mean for the Aussie dollar and for the Australian economy? I actually think that that spread will go negative
1: and notwithstanding the initial reaction to the Fed's last meeting and announcement, which was that, well, the, Fed, the Fed's dovish. You know, there was a sort of dovish reaction which saw US bond yields come down, the US dollar come down and the Australian dollar go up. I think that was a bit of a, a e-jerk reaction. But I think what's gonna happen over the next 12 months is the inflation risks in the US will gradually start to rise. You've got unemployment pushing down to 4% over there. You've got underemployment also around 4%. Put the two together, you've got a number around 8%, which is way, way below what it is in Australia. And um, sooner or later, that's gonna show up in higher wages growth in the US. Earlier this week, we saw producer price inflation pick up to almost 2.5%, 2.4% to be precise. Two years ago, it was 0.3%. So upstream price increases are starting to come through. So notwithstanding the fact that it's taken longer for inflation to show up, um, I think it would be very dangerous to assume that it won't show up. I think it will pick up eventually. And that in turn will probably see the Fed get a bit more aggressive next year, at least do three hikes, we think four. Um, Whereas Australia will probably at most do one hike next year, which means that the, short term interest differential will go negative, Australian rates will be below US interest rates, they're almost equal now. Um, And I think that will ultimately drive the 10 year bond yield in Australia below the US 10 year bond yield, probably more US 10 year bond yield rising and our rate staying the same or not going up as much. So history tells us, as you pointed out, that 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 situation normally results in the Australian dollar falling. Uh, I know in terms of the short rate differential, whenever um, Australian rates are declining relative to US rates through time, particularly when they go, the gap goes negative, the Aussie dollar tends to come down. The last time you saw that was uh, that decline into 2001 when the Aussie dollar went to 48 cents. So I, I, I think that's what will happen. The Aussie dollar will go down. Is it gonna happen in a straight line? No, it hasn't. This year it went up. <laughs> Surprised me, it went up. Um,
0: but I think ultimately the Aussie dollar will go down. Do you think it could fall, you know, a, a, to that extreme levels of, you know, the 60, 50 or even lower? Or do you think it'll be a much milder fall than we saw last time?
1: Well, my, my base
0: case is that it's a
1: milder fall. Um, but you never know with these things, you know, once they get going, they can go further. The reason I say it's going to be a milder fall was because back in 2000 and or the early 2000s, late 1990s, there was a the feeling that Australia was old economy, that we were, you know, we were past it, you know, we just dug stuff out of the ground and made things, whereas the new economy was tech. We didn't have any of that, and that, that feeling seems to have gone away. There, there is an underlying degree of support for our commodity prices coming out of China that wasn't the case back in 2001, although it was about to take off. Um, but China's growth is still fairly solid, iron ore price you're probably going to see hovering around this $60, 50 60 70 range. Um, that's a reasonably solid level of the iron ore price. So export earnings for Australia should remain reasonably robust. So even though the interest differential will be working against us, the trade balance will be reasonably positive for Australia. And that should um, mean that if the Aussie dollar comes down, which I think it will, it sort of goes more like to 70 cents rather than 60 or 50
0: or even lower. You mentioned that you you think the RBA is gonna raise rates once next year, is that right? When do you think that comes? Is it likely to be a a late year rate rise earlier in the year?
1: I I think it's probably won't be till late 2018 before the RBA moves. Um, And then I would say, and we're forecasting one rate hike, but yeah, there is a risk that that gets pushed off to to 2019. But I I think if you look at Australia, it looks to me like the economy is rebalancing yet again, away from housing, this time around to non-mining investment, infrastructure spending, and of course, uh, resource export volume. So those things are sort of gonna fill the gap as housing slows and as the consumer remains a bit sluggish. Um, But anyway, and you can see good signs in terms of business confidence has been good for a while, consumer confidence has recently gone up um, and you could argue the jobs market is very strong and that should eventually help the economy. Um, But I think in the absence of much stronger wages growth, higher inflation, where the Aussie dollar is still relatively high, it's hard to see the Reserve Bank moving
0: quickly. Um, and therefore I don't see them moving till late 2018. Do you think that's the start of another major cycle or was it, is it gonna be a you know, one or two and done kind of situation? <laughs> well, um,
1: there's a lot of people saying that, that, that you know, just one hike will cause mass uh, default amongst Australian households. I, I don't think that's exaggerated. I've heard these um stories before and i recall regularly reading the fujitsu mortgage stress report this was over 10 years ago now um thinking oh gee this is terrible you know once interest rates go up uh, we're all going to be ruined and of course it didn't happen you know prices came off a bit and people kept going i i think so i think talk of mortgage stress is real but it's exaggerated um if you look at the interest bill on australian household debt at the moment it's about 30 percent where it below where it was at the record high, which was just prior to the GFC, Um, and that was when interest rates were a lot higher than they are at the moment. So I think we can withstand some interest rate hikes, but uh, probably more than two, but I doubt that we get much beyond 1%, 100 basis points. So I think what the Reserve Bank will do, they'll do 0.25%, then they'll sit back a bit like the Fed, they did 0.25% back in December 2015. And then they waited a whole year before they did anything else. So I think you're going to see the same thing in Australia. Um, one move by the Reserve Bank, they'll wait and see what the impact is on the economy. They'll probably do another one, um, and then once they're confident they've done enough to head off any inflation problem, assuming that's the issue at the time, then that, that'll be it. That, that's what they'll they'll end at that point. So it could be somewhere between 0.5 and and 1% in terms of the the next cycle up, but. Um, the real issue there is that we just have more debt than we had in the past so therefore the household sector is more vulnerable to higher rates and you've got a bunch of people out there who have interest-only loans and they're
0: already feeling a bit under pressure. How high do you think rates would have to go to cause mortgage stress? You said you're only expecting maybe a maximum of 100 basis points but uh, how much of a gap is there before you start getting into that mortgage stress? do you uh, think I, I did a
1: calculation recently if you did 200 basis points of rate hikes given the higher level of debt, then that will get a bit, bit well, if you think about it this way um, mortgage rates are currently around 4%. If you took them up to 6%, um, depending on, it varies depending on the person, but took them up to 6%, so 200 basis points of hikes, that's a 50% increase in, uh, in interest payments or other things being equal, um, which would get us up to the levels that prevailed just prior to the GFC. So we're now one third below that level in terms of interest payments as a share of household income. Um, And if you took them back up by 50%, 200 basis points of hikes, then we'd be back to that level. And I think that would cause major problems. Um, It didn't impact things back then because we had the support from China, making everyone feel reasonably comfortable. You're getting tax cuts every year. This time around, I think people are a lot more vulnerable. (coughs) So I'd say it's... It's hard to know precisely what it would be. If you read some of the surveys, they'd suggest that just 25 basis points would cause major problems. I doubt it, um, but I suspect that if we get much beyond 1%, then I think that would probably be the limit. Uh, at that point, I, I think I'd be reasonably confident we'd get um, some uh,
0: decent amount of mortgage stress creeping in around <coughs> 1%. Presumably, uh, the RBA governor's well aware of that as well, though. <laughs> well, this is the thing. You know, people seem to put out these numbers and say, well,
1: this is what's going to happen. Any move in interest rates will be ruined. But the Reserve Bank is aware of this stuff. They're not idiots. You know, They're putting out uh, research on housing and uh, vulnerability and all this sort of stuff on a regular basis because they're thinking about the time when they will eventually have to raise interest rates again and how much they can move by and how quickly they should move. So the Reserve Bank doesn't, just like the Fed, the Reserve Bank won't go on to automaton status it won't say rates are going up now we'll just do 25 every every time we meet they won't do that they will do 25 they won't see what happens at the end of the day they're targeting real outcomes in the economy and inflation if at the time growth is strong they want to cool it down to head off an inflation problem they'll just do the amount necessary to call that could cause that slowdown to head off the inflation problem they don't just they won't just keep going up to six percent mortgage rates or eight percent mortgage rates they'll it'll be
0: sort of steady as she goes and see what happens just like the fed has done whites in the eyes of uh inflation as as uh i think it was janet yellen said that's right that's right (laughs) um talking about the uh australian share market now uh it's obviously been a fairly major underperformer not just this year but for quite some time now Mm. uh compared to global markets um do you think the australian share market can throw that off and, uh, and outperform global indexes in 2018, and why or why not? Well, well, one day, but if you look back through history, going back over the last 100 years, you often see a decade where Aussie
1: shares are the place to be, that was the 2000s, <laughs> and then you see a decade where they're not, and this, this decade is where they're not. And I, th- I think it, a lot of it has to do with the commodity cycle. The commodity cycle was very positive for Australia last uh, decade. But unfortunately, particularly that period 2001, 2011, unfortunately um, that ended with the Aussie dollar sort of well above parity and that sort of, yeah, started to make things a lot tougher. The Reserve Bank raising interest rates in 2009-10 when the Fed and others were on hold at zero. That was another source of underperformance. Um, Obviously the the slump in commodity prices hasn't helped. So there's been a bunch of things that have worked against our market. And then more recently, we've been going through a sort of a, almost a bit of a a sort of a milder version of the malaise, the US and others went through after the GFC. Now people feeling a bit wary about things whereas straight after the GFC, we felt on top of the world. Um, But I think in recent times, Australians starting to feel more cautious about things. You're seeing far more Australians. I think that the, uh, I saw the other day a survey uh, one of the Roy Morgan surveys, you know, how do you feel about the year ahead? Something like 30% of Australians thought the year would be better, which is roughly the same as the proportion who said it'd be worse. Now that's the, that's the most negative um, uh, difference between the two and then, then the last recession, which was back in the early 1990s. So Australians are feeling a little bit wary about the future. Um, and, and that's perhaps also been reflected in our share market. And then foreign investors have thought, well, you know, the Aussie share market that's had a great run on the back of commodities, that's gone. We, we were a bit worried about China collapsing. I don't think China's going to collapse, but foreigners tend to worry about China collapsing, particularly if you're in Europe or the, or the US. And they also think, oh, Australia's had this big housing boom that, that uh, might go bust one day, so we better stay away from Australian banks. So they stay away from our resources and our banks, um, thinking there's going to be some sort of collapse out there. So all of these things have explained the relative underperformance. Um, And I think it's probably a little bit too early to say that that's over. I I think we'll remain a relative underperformer as we go through next year. Um, But sometime in the next few years, that's gonna turn around and it'll turn back the other way in Australia's favor. So I I think we're still in in an environment where if you're after income, Australian shares, place to be. If you don't don't wanna worry about the foreign exchange issues, again, Australian shares, place to be, they will be okay. Um, But if you want growth, and probably outperformance, like we've seen in 2017, then global shares are the place to be. So it's not disastrous for Australia, it's just I think this period of relative underperformance might have a little bit further to go.
0: Great. So one more question for the main part of the interview. Um, I wanted to talk about the business cycle and the credit cycle. Obviously there's a lot of talk about how long this current cycle since the GFC has gone on. Um, but of course, these cycles don't die of old age. So how far through it do you think we are? And um, you know, do you, is there an end in sight?
1: Well, not clearly at the moment. Um, it, it's right. I mean, that's a, that's a famous quote. You know, business cycle doesn't die of old age, it dies of exhaustion. Um, and signs of exhaustion are excessive growth in debt, um, uh, rapid growth in wages, uh, very, very low unemployment, you know, high inflation, central banks aggressively tightening monetary policy, and overinvestment somewhere or other. So, in the tech boom, they overinvested in tech type capex, and then, of course, housing in the US prior to um, the GFC. And then, Australia's case, you'd argue we overinvested perhaps in mining <laughs> related stuff. So, th- th- those sorts of exhaustion or excess. Uh, is what you look for for the end of the cycle and so far we don't see that so i don't think we're anywhere near the the beginning of the cycle (laughs) we're well off the lows obviously the gfc was a long time ago the uh the eurozone crisis was a long time ago and that little growth scare around 2015 early 2016. that was a while ago now so markets are no longer dirt cheap and they're no longer underloved like they were a while back Um, but we're not yet at the point where we see generalized excess over investment um, excessive debt growth, inflation problems, aggressive monetary tightening at the moment. So we're up the cycle. We're getting closer to the top, but we're not quite there yet. It could still be another year or two away. How come it's taking so long this time? Everyone says, oh, well, the US has been in a bull market since 2009, March, 2009. Um, this is one of the longest bull markets in American history. Uh, therefore it must end, certainly. it doesn't work that that simply. You have to get excess and exhaust and um, exhaustion to creep in. The age is irrelevant to this. It's, it's the indicators around the market that will give you a guide to that, not so much how long the, the bull market's been going for. But the real issue here is that the recovery from the GFC was so slow and messy. That's why this cycle's uh, allowed to be relatively elongated.
0: Yeah, the, um, the call of March 2009 being the bottom or the beginning of the next bull market seems a little bit odd to me. Uh, the If you look at what was going on in 2011, 2012, that definitely did not seem like a bull market to no, it <laughs> subjectively.
1: It, it didn't, it depends on how you, if you define a bull market as a, um, a, a rising trend, unless it's interrupted by 20% or greater fall, then you can say, well, the US share market has been in a bull market since March 2000, because you haven't had a 20% or greater fall, um, either in 2000 and, 11 or uh 2015 16. They, they didn't quite but they got very close i think the 2011 period came down 19 percent and that didn't feel like a bull market to me so technically i i, I sort of say well that's the typical definition 20 percent or greater marks a bear market the us didn't have that but i would agree with you that that 2011 period felt to me like a cyclical bear market and it certainly was in australia Um, Europe and Japan, they all had falls in excess of 20%. And likewise in 2015, 16, if you look at Australia, we came down 20%. Um, If you look at Japan and Europe, they were 20, 25%, roughly each, China was off uh, around 50%. So um, sure, the US only came off 14%, so maybe that wasn't a bear market, but globally it felt like a bear market. So in that sense, you can make an argument, well, in actual fact, if you look at cycles, we did have a
0: bit of a bear market um, just a couple of years ago for Mm. most markets. Well, that's the main part. We've got a series of regular questions that we like to do with every guest. Mm. Um, So uh, we've just got three, three quick questions for you. So firstly, one of our key objectives for the podcast is to teach the audience something they hadn't thought about before. Um, Could you share with us something important that investors aren't thinking about right now, a risk, a strategy, cognitive bias, opportunity, whatever you like.
1: I think, I, I think the biggest risk is probably around inflation, that, that people have been so used to predictions that inflation will rise and then it not happening that they're getting a little bit complacent about things. There is this cognitive bias that people tend to project the current state of the world off into the future, just like they do when you have a hot day, they, or a couple of hot days, the longer it goes on for, they more, they assume it's going to continue, even though there might be in Australian, uh, Australian parlance or South East Australian parlance actually southern Australian parlance, just generally a southerly change around the corner (laughs) to come through. But um, there is that tendency to sort of project the world off into the future. And I think because we've been going through this low inflation period for so long, people look for regions to rationalise and they assume that's going to continue. And one day it won't. And then suddenly the yield plays, which have been so much in favour over the last few years, won't be the place to be. Um, You should be somewhere else in the market. So I think that's that's something that I, I think is probably not getting enough attention at the moment.
0: Yeah, I guess there's so many um, uh, younger finance professionals now would never have actually even seen inflation in their careers. Um, it'd, it'd be very, uh, it'd be hard for somebody like myself who, um, you know, started their career in 2007 to, to really understand what it's like living in that environment and what it looks like.
1: <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, there's lots of people who have, well, there's lots of Australians who haven't even lived in a recession, so they wouldn't understand how that looks, but uh, inflation is, is, I think a lot of Australians would see it as something from the dim, dark past, you know, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, now, if you're an older Australian and you've got big healthcare bills and your health insurance keeps going up 5 7% every year, or all Australians that keeps happening. Um, then you might think differently about it. You say, well, there is a bit of inflation around here already, but for many Australians who you know, um, love electronic gadgets and you know, can now get Netflix at a fraction less than they used to spend in the local video store each week, um, think this, this is fantastic. That uh, I, I bought a car the other day same model and brand as the one I bought in 2010 and it was the same price but it has more gadgets on so I mean that that's <laughs> that's very low inflation but so people get attuned to the way things are and, the, and generations sort of forget about it and become relaxed about things but history tells us that the cycle will always return eventually even though it may take longer than normal but eventually we'll get back to a point where inflation will start to pick up.
0: Well, uh, second question of the of the regular ones. Uh, if you could go back in time to when you were just finishing up uh, college or university, and give yourself one piece of investing advice, what would it be? Well, start saving and investing early. I think this is very important, and mo- many Australians don't realise this
1: till later in their career when they can see retirements five, ten years down the track, and they realise that on current projections they don't have enough. But it is one of the 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 benefits, the beauty of Australian superannuation. As soon as you get a job, you know a chunk of your income goes into saving that's great stuff Um, but beyond that a lot of people don't do a lot and i think the earlier you can start the discipline of saving um, i I wouldn't necessarily advocate piling into the city of melbourne property markets now but getting a mortgage is a great way to get discipline in terms of saving because you're effectively borrowed to buy an asset and then you pay it down Um, but that's a form of saving that's saving um, when you pay down your mortgage so um I, th- I think the key here is to start early what if you do just just look at the magic of compound interest um, the earlier you can get into a growth asset the better off you will be and then you won't have to worry about the wiggles ups and down the focus will be on the rising trend through time um, but related to that yeah, if you do start early just make sure you don't get into defensive asset classes paying you two percent <laughs> you want to get into assets that pay you uh, will generate decent growth over time, that are connected to growth in the economy.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point. You see so many young people who, uh, who just put all of their savings in a bank account when you know, the, there's zero risk and zero returns in there. Um, the, the, the share market might be a little bit scary for some people, but uh, it, it's hard to deny the, the long-term performance. <laughs> well, I think
1: that's right. It is very hard to deny. If you go back over a long period, you know, the long-term return on Australian shares has been around 12%. Uh, Bonds has been around six, this is back to 1900, and um, cash has been around four, four or five. Now of course you can't get four or five out of cash at the moment, it's two and a half at most or something, and you can't get six out of bonds because the bond yields are what again, uh, two and a half percent or something, very low numbers there. So um, our share is going to give you 12%, well probably not. but. You buy shares right now, you can get a 4.5% dividend yields. You add in the franking credits, that's 6%. You're already getting 6% income flow each year out of the share market. Make sure you have a diverse portfolio. You don't just buy one high yielding share, you get bad luck and that share conks out your stuff. But, um, but you're already getting 6% for a well diversified exposure to Australian shares. You're already getting 6% if you're Australian based taxpayer. All you've got to do is get 4% uh, capital growth every year and you'll get 10%. <laughs> you're already doing pretty well. Um, and, and I also worry a little bit that Australia, young Australians might think, well, I can't get into housing. I'm going to have to rent. Um, and therefore, they never get that discipline that comes with getting a house, you know, paying down your mortgage for savings into an asset that grows over time. Um, you know, there's a danger that people who rent don't have that discipline to save. And therefore, will end up far worse off when retirement time comes around. Because the early generation had the family home to sell and their superannuation so, so they're a bit better off but if you're going down the rent path um, just just bear in mind you want to put your, your savings somewhere else if you're not going to put it into a house
0: you have got to put it somewhere else to build up your your will through time for when you retire definitely one last question for you if the market was going to close uh, tomorrow for the next five years and you could only own one asset what would it be
1: well you've used a, a broad term there asset so I, I would say uh, shares Um, I would probably, look, you're talking five years here, um, but I, and I sort of, over that bias, I'd have a bias towards global shares as an asset class, um, but because I don't want to take the currency risk over that period, because I think somewhere in that period Australian shares will start to outperform again, and I know I'm getting a good income flow out of Australian shares, I would probably put it into an Australian share ETF or index fund or active fund or whatever. Um, I, I, if you say, specify, say we got to pick one share, I, I really wouldn't want to do that because I'm not a stock picker. I don't claim to have the expertise there, and I fear that I might get it wrong somewhere in that five year window. So, therefore, I'd rather go for the overall market, collect my dividends along the way. At least I'll be assured of getting a good income flow, and presumably I'm asleep or the market's gone for five years, so any dividends that companies pay have to get reinvested somewhere in the company. I
0: reckon I'd do pretty well out of that. Great. Well, thanks for talking to us today, Shane. It's been great to hear your thoughts. It's been my pleasure. Great. And thanks for having me along. Well, that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back in two weeks to discuss technology and disruption with Alex Pollack, CEO of Loftus Peak, which specializes in investing in listed disruptive businesses. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And as always, thanks for listening.